Uh, some of you guys, just, just as a reminder, some of you new guys, I just want you to know that the book table is free. And uh, if uh, there's something on the table you'd like to read, please take it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from this book again a couple of times, The Case for Creator. And, uh, you know, I think every Christian needs to read this book. Uh, so, Laura, good book. Okay, Laura says it's good, so you've got to read it now. So, you owe it to yourself to read this book, particularly if you're not current on uh, science. Uh, it'll help you catch up, I think. In our first two sermons on uh, creation, I've quoted a fair number of scientists, and uh, some would say that's a mistake to do that when you're talking about creation or you're talking about origins. And they would have a good reason for saying that, and, and in, on, on one hand, I would, I would definitely agree with them. Ultimately, science makes no contribution to the study of creation. Creation is utterly beyond the scope of science. There's a boundary beyond which scientific inquiry cannot go. If you look up the word science in the dictionary, you'll read something like this. The observation, identification, description, experimental investigation, and theoretical explanation of natural phenomenon. From that definition, does anybody understand already why science has nothing to say about origins and creation? Okay, I'm going to give you another definition. Okay. Um, another definition. The scientific method. Listen to this one. If you look, up, look it up in a dictionary, you're going to read something like this. A method of inquiry for investigating natural phenomenon based on uh, gathering observable, empirical, measurable, verifiable evidence. Data are acquired through a process of observation and experimentation that must be repeatable. From that definition, does anybody understand why science and the scientific method ultimately has nothing to say about creation? Does anybody get it? Okay, some of you are shaking your heads. Anybody want to say it? Natural phenomenon. Very good. I think you guys are sharp. You guys are sharp. Natural phenomenon. Uh, creation is not a natural phenomenon. It's simply not. To the contrary, it's a supernatural phenomenon. Very good. Man, you guys are good. For those, who are, for, uh, for those of you who are Bible believers, uh, we understand that creation was not brought about by a series of observable, repeatable, predictable, uniformed, fixed natural laws. Okay? In fact, as Bible believers, we understand that creation came about by unobservable, non-repeatable, unpredictable, non-uniform, instantaneous, inexplicable, miraculous, supernatural events. Amen? All right. All right. All right. Sitting ovation. I always love that. I always love the sitting ovation. Um, actually, in my preaching class, I got, I got a sitting ovation one time. It was, it was awesome. Anyway. Um, Creation is uh, entirely and wholly beyond the purview of science and the scientific method. So ultimately, when a self-professed scientist speaks to origin, he is by definition exceeding his realm of expertise. It's not to say he might not have something interesting to say, and it's not to say that what he says might, the data he's following might actually point to uh, 
a special creation which Genesis 1 talks about. It's not to say that he doesn't have anything to say. It's to say he has nothing authoritative to say. Do you understand? It's not to say that science can't follow the data and see, as we've talked about, the, 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 I guess the best example would be the Big Bang hypothesis. Scientists agree that there was a beginning. The uh, cosmos is not eternal. Scientists uniformly agree on this. So they can have something to say. But what I want to say to you is it's not authoritative. There's only one authoritative account of creation. Guess where you find it? Oh, it's in the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's only one authoritative pronouncement on creation. And I Am gives that. El Shaddai gives that. Elohim gives that. Jehovah gives that. Jesus Christ gives that. Only one authoritative pronouncement on creation. It's from God Himself. It's quite interesting as you study um, the creation account, you realize that there simply are no other credible creation accounts in human literature. There are none. There, there are none. They do not exist. Now, there are some other uh, fanciful and mythical and goofy, cartoonish kind of accounts from other sacred writings around the world, but you can read those and you can tell, well, this is a cartoon I'm reading. These gods are uh, hideously ungodly. Um, there are some goofy things like that. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 stands alone. There is no other account like this in the world. As I mentioned to you last week, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they are a colossal revelatory gift. God is there. And we infer from the fact that He is there, that we were made uh, by Him. And we also infer from that fact that we were made for Him. Colossians 1.16 actually confirms that. He's there. He's the Creator. He made His creatures. We were made by Him and for Him. Now, who's the Creator? We've talked about this. Jesus Christ makes it very clear. Obviously, the, the Godhead is, is involved in the creation. But several times explicitly in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus Christ as being the Creator. Life has meaning simply by virtue of the fact that you've been created by an awesome God. Not only does life have meaning, it has heart-exploding meaning. It has purpose. And that's what Jesus is trying to give to you when He says... Follow me. He's trying to give you the purpose for which you were created. And some of you can give testimony. If you've actually started to follow Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about attending church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually ordering and building your life upon the words of Christ and actually doing what He says to do. If you are following Jesus Christ, I trust you. You're on a, I, I promise you're on, you're on an adventure. You're on an adventure that has meaning and it has purpose. And only when you're walking with Him will you find that meaning. As I've said to you, and I'm going to keep saying this, if Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are true, the implications are eternal. If it's false, it doesn't matter. We're grown up germs. We're going to be fertilizer soon. We're just headed for the box and the hole in the ground. Nothing matters. Nothing really matters at all if Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is false. But beloved, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are a treasured and sacred revelatory gift from God to mankind. 
one of our stated goals in this short sermon series is that uh, we would simply believe what God is saying to us in Genesis 1 and 2. That's one of our goals. We would actually open up the Bible. We would actually believe what our Father God Creator is saying to us in Genesis 1 and 2. His Word should be enough for His people. God is unambiguous in Genesis 1 and 2. And you should be too. You should be unambiguous. I've mentioned to you that Christians should not accommodate unproven and increasingly discredited theories of men. We do not have to import. I know that some churches have done this, but it's an error. We do not have to import macro-Darwinism into Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, if you try it, it doesn't fit. You do violence to the text if you try to import macro-Darwinism into Genesis 1 and 2. I will say it again, and I will probably say it again, and I will probably say it again. We do not have to, nor should we do that. We should not import macro Darwinian evolutionary theory into Genesis 1 and 2. We should not do that. That is a mistake in every possible conceivable way. We don't have to do that to maintain our intellectual integrity. And I fear that many Christians feel that they have to do that to maintain intellectual in integrity. And my assertion to you is, if you'll actually do the reading and catch up on the science, I would contend that the opposite is true. We must reject macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory on intellectual grounds. If you do the reading, if you do the reading, uh, this among many other books, scientists, uh, Darwin is on the run. His adherents are on the run. You need to read this book. Uh, you just need to read it. It's uh, worship-provoking. You'll just worship all the way through it. But we must reject macro-Darwinian evolution on intellectual grounds. That's every bit a scientific asser uh, assertion as it is a theological one. Okay. You say, well, Jim, you told us that the last two weeks. I know. I'm going to tell you that uh, probably another four or five times. I want it to sink in. We're rejecting it on intellectual grounds. I'm not on a, I'm not on a biblical or spiritual or religious vendetta here. I, I'm arguing for the truth on intellectual grounds when I attack macro-Darwinism. Okay? I just want you to understand that. Okay, can I just quote one more scientist for fun? Just for fun? I give you guys so much free stuff. I mean, your normal pastor wouldn't give you all this free stuff, but this is awesome. Listen to this. British Museum of Natural History's senior paleontologist, Colin Patterson. Listen to this guy. Really smart guy. Quote, nine-tenths of the talk of evolutionists is sheer nonsense. Not founded on observation and wholly unsupported by the facts. This museum is full of proofs of the utter falsity of Darwinist views. In all this great museum, there is not a particle of evidence of the transmutation of species. It is easy enough to make up stories of how one form gave rise to another, but such stories are not part of true science. That's a scientist. That's a paleontologist. I quoted many scientists in our first, uh, our first sermon in this series. I would encourage you, if you think I'm just a nut, and I've been accused of that many times, I don't have a problem with that. I'm happy to be seen as a nut. Uh, as long as I'm standing with the Lord Jesus and, and the Word of God. But if you just think I'm a nut, please go out and listen to the first two sermons on this series and listen to what the scientists say. Listen to what many scientists are saying. Don't trust me. 
You go do your own research. You go do your own research. I invite you to, I challenge you to, to do your own research. God has told us in His Word how He, did the, how he created the cosmos. He spoke it into existence in six literal days. How many of you have ever heard that preached from the pulpit? I'd like to know. Okay, about five or six or eight. Okay, that's good. That's good. God spoke the cosmos into existence in six literal days. The important question is, do you believe Him or not? Now listen to what John MacArthur says about this. I love this quote. Listen, quote, The starting point for Christianity is not Matthew 1.1. It's Genesis 1.1. Very accurate. Tamper with the book of Genesis and you undermine the very foundation of Christianity. You cannot treat Genesis 1 as a fable or a mere poetic saga without severe implications to the rest of Scripture. He's exactly right. And I love what he, what he says to other Christians who uh, want to uh, allegorize or mythologize Genesis 1 and 2. I love what he says to them. He says, well, tell me, friend... Where exactly do you kick in and start believing what God says? Where exactly do you kick in before you stop, before you stop rationalizing what God has clearly said in His Word? I love that. What chapter do you actually kick in and actually believe what God says? Beloved, my point is, as the people of God, when it comes to what we believe, we should never defer to the theories of men, much less the discredited increasingly discredited theories of men. We need to stand on the Word of God. We just need to have the intellectual integrity and courage to do that. I know, I know how people look at you when you talk like this out in the world. <laughs> it happens to me. I know, I know they think that you're a rube. I know they think you're uneducated. I know that they think you're just a, a Bible-thumping, knuckle-dragging fundamentalist. I know that. But, beloved, it's the truth. It just happens to be the truth, and it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. God, help us if we're ashamed of the Word of God. We've lost our way if we are. We have lost our way. It really comes down to you and I having the, the, the intellectual integrity and backbone. To say, yes, that's what my Father says. That's what He says. And I stand with my Father. Now, I, some of you in here may be uh, theistic evolutionists. You may still want to hold to that. Uh, I'm not going to judge you for that, but I am going to challenge you to get educated. If you're still holding to that, you are not educated. You have not educated yourself. You, you have been, you're following the media and you're following what uh, academia is saying. I challenge you to educate yourself. And you will run from Darwin. If you will educate yourself, you will run from Darwin. I love, it's in, I love what Francis Schaeffer said. You know that great Christian apologist, 20th century Christian apologist. He said, you know, if I was going to talk to an unbeliever and I had one hour... I'd spend 55 minutes talking to him about Genesis 1 and 2. Do you understand that? That's how important it is. If we really are created and he did it, the implication is we're accountable to him, right? 
He said, I'd spend 55 minutes talking about Genesis 1 and 2, and I'd spend five minutes telling him about how this awesome Creator died on a cross to become their Redeemer. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying. So it's up to the, the people of God to stand on the Word of God and just destroy uh, speculations of men. I love how Paul says at 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying the speculations of men in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Macro-Darwinian uh, evolution is a lofty speculation raised up against the uh, knowledge of God and ICM, the International Church of Milan, categorically rejects it. At some point, that will be on the website with our statement of faith. In our statement of faith. God says what He means, and He means what He says. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I've already laid the groundwork on Genesis 1.1. I'm not going to uh, go through that again except to say that we understand that in the beginning, it's simply the beginning of the time, space, matter, universe. God steps out of eternity past. God is eternal. He's I Am. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's the transcendent, uncreated one. He has no beginning. I know that blows your finite mind, but that's who God is. And He steps out of eternity past and He creates time, space, and matter. He creates ex nihilo. That's Latin. He just, he just speaks and, and stuff happens. I mean, He doesn't need tools. He doesn't need materials. God just speaks and it stands for ex nihilo. That's the power of God. We talked a lot about that last week. Raw, unfathomable, incomprehensible, infinite power. I like how Henry Morris paraphrases Genesis 1.1. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space, mass, time, universe. Genesis 1.1. Verse 2. Some of you are aware of this. If you've been a Christian very long, you understand that verse 2 has been grossly abused over the years. Um, uh, some have alleged that there are billions of years between uh, verse 1 and verse 2. It's called the gap theory. How many of you have heard this before? Okay. It's really just a blatant attempt to try to import old earth presuppositions into Genesis chapter 1. The speculation is that between uh, verse 1 and verse 2, Satan falls. The earth, uh, the earth goes into uh, darkness and... Uh, Many creatures that lived on the earth before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, such as dinosaurs, went into extinction. The only problem with this is that it's all sheer speculation. It's just sheer speculation. And I hope that you learn one thing at the International Church of Milan. One thing we try not to do with the Word of God is speculate. We try not to import our own worldview presuppositions into the text. We try to let God just speak to us and tell us what He means. Anytime you're in a church and you've got some guy and he's just importing tons of junk in there, you probably have a problem. You probably need to go find another church. Okay? When you leave here, I know 98% of you will leave here and never come back. That's just how you treat us. Um, uh, but we love you anyway. And uh, 
But man, find a church that actually says, this is what God's Word says, and this is what it means. And you can actually, you can actually see it on the, the black letters on the white page. And you go, yeah, 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 I can see that. But if he's importing a bunch of junk, man, you, you just need to run. You just need to run from that church. Verse 2 simply is the initial phase of creation. It's reminiscent of, of a potter. And he's, got, he's just got raw clay on the wheel. Okay? And, and there it is. And God's going to put His hands on it. He's going to go to work on it in a metaphorical sense. So it's a lump of unformed clay. It's, it's, it's barren. It's uninhabited. It's dark and covered by water. I like how the message paraphrases verse 2 here. It says, it, it calls the earth a watery abyss. A watery abyss. Psalm 104, 5 and 6 actually speaks to this. Listen to this psalm. You, he's talking about God, who laid the foundations of the earth, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. The master potter did not leave the unformed clay uh, by itself long. The NAS actually says that the, the Spirit of God was moving over the waters the ESV says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The literal translation is the Spirit of God was fluttering over the waters. One uh, Hebrew scholar translates it uh, that God vibrated over the waters. There's a picture here, there's imagery here of God uh, uh, infusing the created order with His energy and power. I just want to share that with you. I think this is part of the imagery that we see here in verse to the fact that the earth is seething with life. It's directly owing to the Holy Spirit here, the Spirit of God in, verse chapter, in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, David noted the Holy Spirit's role in giving life to all creatures. Listen, listen to David in Psalm 104, 30. You send forth your Spirit and they are created. So the Spirit of God is at work here in the creation. Have you ever noticed, maybe you have, that the whole creation is it's uh, put in terms of, it's spoken about uh, from the standpoint of someone being on the earth or observing the earth. You know, they're not on Saturn or Antares or in the Milky Way somewhere. They're right here on the earth. Can you, anyone figure out why that might be, might be true? Because God's focal point is the earth. God's focal point is the earth. Darwinists love to talk about how unremarkable the earth is. They love to talk about this. That there's probably millions of planets, like, millions of planets just like the earth that could support complex life. They love to talk like this. In fact, you, some of you guys remember uh, Carl Sagan used to be a, a media figure some years ago, late uh, atheist and Darwinist astronomer. He says that the earth is a hunk of rock and metal orbiting a humdrum star. What I want to say to you, beloved, in my view, that's a kind of blasphemy. It's a kind of blasphemy. The, rare, the earth is shockingly rare. It's shockingly rare. It's shockingly rare. You need to read this book if you haven't read this book. The earth is unbelievably rare. It's called the anthropic principle uh, in scientific parlance. It's uh, the fine-tuning argument. All of the things that have to be perfect for complex life forms to exist. 
And God, with great attention, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. And He's beginning to build a perfect habitat for His creatures who will be made what? In the image of God. It's a kind of blasphemy when you hear Darwinists talk about, oh, the earth, is, it's unremarkable. It's unremarkable. Wrong. God has put His glory on display here. Listen to Lee Strobel about this fine-tuning argument with regard to intelligent design. The Earth's location, size, composition, structure, atmosphere, temperature, internal dynamics, uh, it must, uh, its many intricate cycles along with its location in relation to the sun and the moon testify to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precariously balanced to sustain human life. I hope I convince you of the uniqueness of planet Earth. Based on all the fine-tuning components, uh, Harvard-educated, University of Chicago-educated, respected and recognized astronomer John A. O'Keefe estimated the mathematical probabilities that there'd be another planet anywhere in the cosmos just like Earth. When you take into account all the things that have to be perfect, guess what, he guess, guess what his calculations indicated? There are probably none... There are probably none. He doesn't have a theological problem with the fact there might be aliens somewhere. He says, just from a mathematical probability, there probably are none that could support complex life. I love that. I think that's beautiful. I'm going to give you one more, science, one more scientist quote, and then I'm, this is just more free stuff, and then I'm, I think I'm done with the scientists for tonight. But Michael J. Denton, he's a molecular gen geneticist, He's talking about this. He calls it audacious uh, assertion that Earth, that the whole cosmos was made and Earth was made for man and for the glory of God. That everything you see, all as, as far as you can see in Hubble Telescope, you know, six billion times six trillion miles out there in the deep space field, it's all about what God wants to do in and through men. Listen to what he says. That all the starry heavens, every species of life, every characteristic of reality exists to create a livable habitat for mankind. Remarkably, uh, given the audacity of that claim, it has never been discredited. No observation has ever laid it to rest in the last decades of the 20th century. Listen to this. Its credibility is being enhanced by discoveries in several branches of fundamental science. Among the quadrillion stars and planets, Earth was God's focal point. The Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. Verses 3 through 5, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. One day. Now, some of you really smart guys, we have a few of you guys out there really sharp, really sharp. I know that uh, you've already deduced that the sun and moon and stars have not been created yet. They're created on the fourth day. But we already have what? We already have light. So you ask me, Jim, where does the light come from? And I say to you, that's a great question. I say, I have no idea because God does not tell us 
God does not tell us exactly the source of this light. It may be some ethereal glow that He calls into to existence. We don't really know because He does not tell us where the light comes from. And I want to say to you, if you're a Bible believer, this should not be an issue for you. I actually hear people call the creation account, Genesis 1, into question because of this very fact, which is ludicrous to me, but I hear this. If the account were written solely by a man, and we know it was written by Moses, it's God's revelation to Moses, do you think Moses was that stupid? Do you think he would make a blunder like that? If that's a blunder, do you think Moses would write it like that? Or do you think if this was the writings of men, they would write it in such a way that men could not take obvious issue with it? But men, it's a man writing it, but it's a revelation of God. And God doesn't really care if men can rationally follow what He's doing or not. God does not explain Himself to His creatures. The Bible, I've told you many times, is not God's explanation. The Bible is God's revelation. And He doesn't fill in the blanks and He doesn't connect all the dots all the time. So I think that's important that we understand that. God is the author. And he, I think He smiles when we scratch our heads over the fact that there's light and the permanent light bearers have not yet been uh, created. And, I, and we're scratching our heads a little bit and I, I think He smiles. And are you surprised that, that Jehovah God would interject faith into the creation account? Are you surprised? What is the one thing that pleases God? He, uh, Hebrews, 11, chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. What is it that you cannot please God without? Is it a surprise that God is interjecting faith into the creation account? Well, where does this light come from? We don't know. It's okay because God says it's there. I don't have to know where it comes from. Maybe He'll tell me when I see Him. But I don't have to know. And I don't have to defend Him (laughs) to some atheistic Darwinist uh, with respect to the fact that the, the permanent sources of light have yet to be created. I love what Paul says in Romans 11.33. God is awesome. He says He's infinitely above us. And then Paul says this, His ways are unfathomable. His ways are unfathomable. They are unreachable. They are untraceable. They are inscrutable. They are past finding out. And I know God delights. God delights in uh, tripping up haughty, arrogant men. I have no question about it. But God's people receive His revelation by faith. As Hebrews 11, uh, 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The one who is uncreated light and who dwells in unapproachable light speaks the reality of light into existence. I don't fully understand uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 3. I'll be honest with you, I don't fully understand it. I don't need to. I don't need to. God hasn't explained it, and I do not demand an explanation from Him. It's interesting, just very quickly, you know, science doesn't really even understand light. Uh, it has properties of both being a particle and a wave. 
Science doesn't really, a, a physicist can't really even explain um, all that light is. They can observe it and document its properties and effects, but they can't fully explain it. it it's probably the most fascinating and most uh, mysterious and most needed element on the, on the planet. If you don't have light, there can be no life. So God calls light into existence. He speaks it into existence. And He reveals His awesome, worship-provoking power. He says, let there be light. And there it was. Can I just... I know... I, okay, I, give me, can I have like two extra minutes to give you one more free thing? I love this. This is so cool. No. Okay. Uh, listen to this. You're going to love this. If you take a, a, a canister of empty space, total vacuum, no molecules in it, you freeze it to absolute zero where all the radiation is gone, there'll still be something in there. And it's power. It's energy. Scientists estimate in a coffee cup of empty space is enough energy and power to evaporate all the oceans of the world. They don't understand it. What I want to say to you is I've read Christian scientists who, who actually believe that this is a remnant of the, of the creation and the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters and infusing energy and power into God's created order. Verse 4, God says the light was good. It's the uninterrupted course of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it is good. God creates and it is good. It is good. It's just a picture of who He is. It is good. Verse 5, uh, and four here. Uh, let me finish up there. God separates the light from the darkness. And He called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was an evening and there was a morning. One day. Now I know some of you really smart people are thinking, now wait Jim, you're telling me the Bible's saying there was a, an evening and a morning. There was a, there was a day. And, and wait a minute, how can you have a solar day when there is no sun? What did I say to you? His ways are past finding out. His ways are past finding out. I, you ask me that question, I say, I don't know, but this is the revelation of God. He is the only one who speaks authoritatively on creation. Now, you can go listen to someone else, but God is the only eyewitness to creation. You cannot debate with Him about this. You don't have to understand it fully, but God calls His people to believe it fully. Hebrews 11, 3. And to have the intellectual integrity and backbone to proclaim it for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Real quick, for all born again Christians, this creation of light in Genesis 1, it's a th thrilling reminder of what God has done in our dark hearts. You guys, you guys know that Paul talks about uh, true conversion in these terms in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that Romans chapter 1 tells us that Men have suppressed the truth of God, that, that, that they're God-haters, and, and that they're holding that truth down, and that they've become futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts have been, does anybody remember? Their foolish hearts have been darkened. So what does God do? God speaks light into the heart of the believer. He speaks light into the Christian. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. First, Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of Jesus. But then Paul says, 
For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's, he's just, it's just a reference to Genesis 1-3. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you are a born-again Christian tonight, it's because God has spoken His omnipotent power into your dead, cold, black heart. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's the teaching of the Bible. There it is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. God dispels uh, uh, the darkness in the cosmos with His Word. He does the same thing in your heart, friend. If we really understand what the Bible is saying about true conversion, we understand it's a miracle of God. And, it, and it's through His, His omnipotent power. As I thought about creation, and I'm done, pretty much. Maybe one more minute. Um, as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of John chapter 9. You know that famous chapter in John chapter 9 where Jesus healed what? The man who was what? Born blind, something had never been heard of before. Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And as I thought about God's creation of light, I thought about God coming as light. 29 times, I looked this up uh, yesterday, 29 times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as light. 29 times. You think that's a coincidence? No. 29 times He's referred to as light. Light, Jesus said, John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. And He healed that man born blind just to make the point. He is the light of the world. And do you remember the testimony of the, of the man that was healed? Do you remember that great testimony? Wherefore I was blind, but now I see. And this is the true confession of every born again believer. I was blind, but now I see by the omnipotent power of God. I'm not just a religious man. I didn't just do a formula. God has spoken light and life into my heart. And I'm born again and I'm brand new and I love Him, man. And I'm going to work. I'm going to live for Him. I'm going to love this awesome God. I'm going to serve this awesome God. It's true Christianity. True Christianity. So I want to challenge you, believer, to embrace this light and, and, and unbeliever that might be here. This is for both. Embrace this light. Receive this light. Follow this light. Walk in this light. Become the light. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and 12, He said, He who follows Me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of the life of, of life and shall become sons of light. I'm done, but you remember uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, what did Jesus say about His people? You are what? You are the light of the world. He says, you go live your life in such a way that I'm glorified and men see your works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I'm making the connection between the light that God speaks into existence in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and the, the fact that you're the light of the world. And so I'm going to end tonight just challenging you, Christian friend. Go live like you're the light of the world. The unbelievers around you are supposed to see it. I tell you this all the time. The unbelievers around you are supposed to see it. Your spouse is supposed to see it. Your kids are supposed to see it. Your co-workers are supposed to see it. Your, your fellow church members are supposed to see it. We live for the glory of Jesus. We embrace that light and we live that light. We are to be sons and daughters of light. For the glory of the living God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Awesome God. Awesome God. Awesome Creator. You create light, and then you come as light. You create men, and then you become a man, and then you die to redeem men. Father, this is too wonderful for us. It's too wonderful for us to fully understand the magnitude of this beautiful gospel. This beautiful God. This God who is infinitely powerful and yet He allows His puny creatures to nail Him to a cross because He loves His people. And He's come to redeem them as we talked about last week forever and forever and forever. You have loved us with an everlasting love and we have seen it on the pages of Scripture and we have experienced it in our hearts for all of those here who are believers. Lord God, I pray that if there's an unbeliever here, that You might convict him, that You might bring him to Yourself. And for all of us here tonight, Father, that are believers, I pray that we'll live like it. I pray that we will be like a city on a hill, that we'll be a light on a hill. We won't live our lives under a a basket but that men will see the beauty and worth and glory of Jesus flowing through our life as we live like sons and daughters of light we praise you awesome God all praise glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ amen have a great week. Go be the light. You're not supposed to be anything less than the light. Go be the light. Hey, if you haven't read this book, you need to read this book. It'll be worship provoking, I promise. God bless. Have a great week. I read a definition of darkness. No, of, yeah, darkness. Light. Light is the absence of darkness. Right. So I was reminded of that when you were speaking. That's good. I wish I said that. Because when, when God came...